0: Good morning, as, as Pastor Chad said, our passage comes out of the book of Ecclesiastes, and I will invite you to turn with us in your Bible, or you can follow along with the screen behind me. Um, Ecclesiastes comes right after the book of Proverbs, and we're uh, going to be reading out of chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preachers sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is... Fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, everything which is good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today, and as Pastor John had mentioned, we all have come with uh, burdens and distractions in life, and I pray that now that we recognize we are here to Put those all aside and worship you. And remember uh, the joy and the hope that we have through what you have already given to us, which is Christ, our salvation. And I pray that now you open our hearts and minds and you teach us and instruct us through your word. And I thank you for this opportunity. In your name we pray. Amen. In her article titled, Why Wall Street Traders Are Obsessed with Jesse Livermore, Lucinda Shen summarizes the precarious life of a man who is one of uh, one of the most well-known stock traders in history. At the age of 14, Jesse's father pulled him out of school and sent him to make money farming. But instead of going to the address given by his mother, Jesse convinced the driver of the carriage to drop him off at Payne Weber, a Boston stockbroker. He eventually left the broker and began trading Boston's bucket shops. And in 1899, after being banned from the bucket shops due to his consistent winning streaks, Jesse left for New York, married his first wife, and then lost everything in the stock market. However, he went to St. Louis and once again made enough money to, at the bucket shops that allowed him to return to Wall Street, where he made $50,000, only to lose it again trading cotton. As the market started to plunge in 1907, Livermore, on a hunch, borrowed and resold shares, earning him the grand total of $1 million in a single day. He had earned the status of being a hero and made many of his peers rich by following his lead. In one year, Jesse went from zero to $3 million and found himself an entirely different class of society now. A few years later, he found himself bankrupt, only to make $5 million back by riding the bull market. At the age of 40, he was divorced, but married another woman named Dorothy, who was a Zeigfeld Follies dancer. Livermore's fame and fortune would continue to rise. He ran a formal trading operation and built and furnished the dream home for his family, which, by the way, cost him $3.5 million. This is in the 20s. On October 29, 1929, the day known as Black Tuesday, the stock market crashed, yet Livermore managed to make $100 million by going short. However, despite his success and widespread fame, his life was subtly changing, and the excess of self-indulgence would eventually take its toll. But we'll come back to Jesse a little bit later. You see, every one of us has a goal that we want to achieve in life. And whatever that goal is, it dictates what we say and do in order to achieve the desires of our heart. Livermore's was to get rich off the stock market and have the luxury that went with it. He took huge financial risks, and he lived with the mindset that this earthly life is what matters most, and we do too. Some of us will do almost anything to make sure that our prestige remains intact. Others work endlessly in hopes to achieve that early retirement. And some of us are consumed by retaining the beauty of our youth despite the inevitable effects of aging. We become very one-track-minded in hopes to gain what we value. But we will see in our text that the riches and the fame and the values of this world are all futile. And Solomon wants us to know that God isn't interested in how much money we have. He doesn't care what we look like when we're 86. Solomon wants to equip us with wisdom, so that we will be ready to stand before God's judgment. The big idea is that we need to live by God's wisdom, not ours. Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, was no stranger to wisdom. And we are told that God himself gave Solomon wisdom and great discernment. And as a matter of fact, he was wiser than all men. People came to hear Solomon's wisdom from all over the earth, including the Queen of Sheba. Solomon was well learned in the sciences, in botany, agriculture, fishing, business, and politics. He spoke 3,000 proverbs and wrote 1,005 songs. His wealth in gold alone during his reign is estimated to be worth in today's amount of over $178 billion. But if we are also to take an account for the other precious metals and jewels and the entirety of the material possessions of his kingdom, it is suggested that it would be worth in excess of over two trillion, with a T, dollars. Yet despite all of his wealth and knowledge, Solomon concluded that all of these things were futile, that they in and of themselves had no eternal value. Through his writings, Solomon's desire is to warn you and I against living in futility and to explain that the entirety of man has but one responsibility. We need to live by God's wisdom, not ours. How do we do this? We can learn from godly people. Verses 9 through 11 says, In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and the right words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of, the, uh, masters of these collections are like well driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. God did not give Solomon great discernment and wisdom exclusively for his own benefit. Solomon also taught the people knowledge so that they would be thoroughly equipped to live how God wanted them to. Because Solomon knew the impact God's wisdom can have on the life of the individual, he worked at great length to make sure that he articulated wisdom accurately. It's simple enough to be understood. Verses 9 through 10 tells us that he pondered, he searched out, and arranged many proverbs. And he searched to find the words that would be most beneficial in explaining the profound truths of God so that we could apply it to our lives. What good is wisdom if it cannot be understood by those who hear it? In verse 10, we see that Solomon sought to write truth in a way that could be understood. His philosophy was, the simpler, the better. Brian Chapel illustrates this process of distilling, for, distilling truth for understanding in his book, "Christ-Entered Preaching." This is his example. Take this chunk. When the sinful nation of Israel went into exile, its messianic hope and vision were mistakenly and faithless, faithlessly diminished because pre-Ezran and pre-Nehemiah proofs of God's sovereign plan, purpose, and intentions for his people were obscured in Babylonian circumstances of incarceration and oppression that would not be relieved until the Persian emancipation and further covenantal revelations in advancing redemptive history." I need a drink. <laughs> after after distill, distillation, it boils down to God remains faithful to a faithless people. Due to comprehension levels and people being vastly different, Solomon made it an objective to avoid lengthy discourse and complex wording. He did this so that godly wisdom would benefit everybody. And though we have in our possession the fruits of his labors, Solomon no doubt spent hours upon hours distilling these truths down so that we know what God requires of our lives. Now like the people who listen to the wise words of Solomon, we too can learn from godly people today. We need to listen to the wise counsel of those who care for us and are willing to invest the time and energy to speak truth into our lives. You see, God-fearing men and women don't just spew out anything and everything that comes to their mind. And like Solomon, they too have gone through seasons in life where they've dealt with futility and they have carried the heavy burden of sinful choices that they've made. Maybe you're in that season right now. It would be wise for you and I to yield to the wisdom of godly people rather than to write them off as of no value. Verse 11 says that the words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails, but they are given by one shepherd. You see, God's wisdom keeps us in check. Solomon paints an agricultural picture representing the benefit of biblical wisdom. For those of you who don't know what a goat is, a goad was an eight-foot-long wooden pole with a spade on one end, used to chip and clean mud off the plow, while on the other end was a sharp point to Poke at the oxen so that the farmer could keep it going in the direction that he wanted it to. Maybe you've heard the term going against the goads, in which it portrays a stubborn oxen kicking against the goads. It doesn't want to follow the guidance of its master, its farmer. But it also represents useless resistance against a greater power. Biblical wisdom likewise can be painful at times, but necessary. Wisdom afflicts those who are comfortable, but it comforts those who are afflicted. Say that one more time. Wisdom afflicts those who are comfortable, but it comforts those who are afflicted. God's word exposes the sin of man. It shatters our pride of self. Yet it also gives us wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. His word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and through training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Back to verse 11, the words of wise men are like goads and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. The words of wisdom pricks at the prideful heart. It's not pleasant and sometimes we kick against the goads of wisdom. Solomon shows us that those who cling to wisdom are firmly established in the ways of God. Solomon gives us yet another illustration when he says that masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. When any kind of construction is being done, if nails securing two pieces of wood together are not adequately hammered in, then whatever they are supposed to keep together will continue to loosen and eventually fall apart. It will not survive the storms, the heavy winds, and the constant expanding and contracting of the material. However, nails that have been sufficiently hammered in are firm and are able to withstand every test of strength. The compiled wisdom of Scriptures likewise makes a person steadfast in all of their ways, like a nail firmly driven in. And though they prick and they prod and they can hurt, they are given by God our shepherd, to keep us from wandering astray, nailed together. I'm sure you can point to a time in your life where someone has confronted you with some hard truth. Maybe at first you rationalized why it wasn't true. Perhaps you even verbalized it to that person. You decided that you knew what was best and proceeded to do things your own way. Yet I'm sure you eventually learned, didn't you? But you probably learned the hard way. C.S. Lewis writes, pain plants the flag of truth in the fortress of a rebel soul. God's wisdom shatters our hardness of heart. It's not pleasant. It's not always fun. But you need to listen and apply godly wisdom the first time rather than let arrogance get in the way. We cannot in any way avoid a futile life by our own wisdom, because only God's wisdom keeps us from futility. Verse 12 says that, But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of of many uh, books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. Solomon shows the futility of searching for life's answers outside of the word of God. We as believers can be confident, knowing that everything that we need for salvation can be exclusively found in His Word. However, mankind has been rejecting the Word of God ever since the fall of creation. We live in an age that is known as the postmodern era, which is characterized that all truth is relative. It is safe to say that if we reject God's Word, then we are left with nothing but an endless amount of futile theories trying to teach us and explain how to live life to the fullest. And if the word of God is removed from our lives, we are left with our own reason and our own perception to guide us. This becomes subjective to the individual. This means that though your neighbor's life may look vastly different from the way that you live, he or she is justified in doing what they do because there is no point of reference. If we do not live by the Word of God, we have lost our source of truth. It is the reference point we need to base all of our decisions on, and if it is gone, we live in futility by our own understanding. We essentially, as Charles Spurgeon says, snatch from the hand his balance and rod, rejudge his judgments, be the God of God. Don from Time for Truth Ministries writes, there has never been a time in the history of the world when so many people were searching for purpose and meaning in their lives. Is it not explained by the fact that our world today is drowning in ever increasing knowledge, yet at the same time, it is experiencing an ever worsening drought of wisdom? Knowledge is outracing wisdom in our modern day world. Consequently, Men are coming to know more and more about less and less, while understanding less and less about more and more. Adam Clark goes on, 2,000 years have elapsed since this was written, and since that time some millions of trees have been added on all kinds of subjects to those which have gone before. The press is still groaning under and teeming with books, books innumerable. And no one subject is yet exhausted, notwithstanding all that has been written on it. And those of us who live in these latter times are no nearer an end. Let's distill all of that down. Only God's word gives us true meaning and purpose in life. Why search for answers in life when they are only to be found in one source? Remember, Solomon had it all. He navigated through all these questions. And he obviously knew what all the other philosophies and religions taught. His own wives practiced pagan beliefs. And we need to take Solomon at his word that godly wisdom is sufficient for life. We don't need to spend endless time seeking through other books on religions and other beliefs and philosophies hoping to gain what only we can gain from God's word. We need to understand this because only God's wisdom prepares us for the judgment to come. Verse 13 through 14 says, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. At this point in Solomon's life, he's at the latter end of his days, and his sight is growing dim, His strength is failing him. People are out to kill him. And he, no doubt, is looking back on his life and the decisions he made with remorse. Though God made a covenant with Solomon early on in his kingship, Solomon broke the covenant with God by being enticed to sin by his own lusts. By intermarrying into pagan cultures, he began to serve their gods and their idols. Now he is worn down by the vanities of life of excess, that he once desired. Matthew Henry writes, All true penitents are convinced of the vanity of the world, for they find it can do nothing to ease them of the burden of sin which they complain of. Though some have suggested that Solomon perished in his sin, the latter part of Ecclesiastes sounds like it was written by a man who is repentant. It would be wise of us to listen to what Solomon writes in these last two verses, for from these verses... We know that no man will escape the judgment of God. It doesn't matter where we lived on earth. It doesn't matter what our vocation was. It doesn't matter if you're married or if you're single, if you're black or white, for in God, there is no discrimination. We will not get any special treatment if we live the best that we could because our best is not good enough. You see, this applies to all men. God himself has given everything that we need for our salvation through Christ. You won't be able to stand justified before God any other way. God won't conveniently forget something that you did. And you won't be excused in saying that you lived the life that you did because it just made more sense. And none of us, none of us will be able to stand and say, it's because we didn't know. We need to cling to the cross of Christ in faith because, rest assured, we can't lean on our own understanding and our own achievements. God sees beyond the successes and the achievements and the prestige. He looks deep into the core of man, the heart. You see, God's judgment exposes. Verse 14 says, For God will bring every act of judgment Everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Brothers and sisters, you can't live by your own reason. Your reason tells you that if you work hard enough, God will take notice. Your own reason thinks that if you make enough money and donate a majority of it to charity, it is sufficient for God. After all, you're helping the poor. Your own reason tells you that if it feels right, it therefore must be right, yet all you are doing is rejudging his judgments and being God of God. If you remember at the beginning of the sermon, James Livermore had just made $100 million during the stock market crash of 1929. And through his widespread fame and riches, he became enslaved to a life of indulgence. His wife Dorothy found out that he'd been keeping mistresses everywhere, some even former dancers that she personally knew. Jesse lost his wife and two sons to divorce, along with $10 million and the beautiful $3.5 million that he had built, which, by the way, Dorothy ended up selling for $220,000, and it was later torn down. Livermore fell into a deep depression. He filed bankruptcy for a third time, but had no spirit left in him to rebound as he did twice before. He lost the desperation to win he once had as a young man and felt as though he was losing himself. In 1975, Jesse Livermore committed suicide and after shooting his beloved dog while drunk, attempting to shoot a police officer. You see, the fear of God was absent from Jesse's life. His money could not save him. Sex could not satisfy him. He lived the way that he wanted and eventually paid the price. None of us will escape the judgment of God. But know this. God has given mankind, you and I, wisdom for our salvation. We don't have to wonder how to fix our sin because the fact is that we can't. We can't. God's judgment is going to be based on two things. One of two things. If Christ is our prosecutor, or if Christ is our defender. If you are content and satisfied with the pleasures of life, reigning as your king, Christ will stand against you as your prosecutor. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And if you think that you know better than God's wisdom, and in turn live by your own reason, however that may look, you will stand condemned before Christ and hear these words, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Ravi Zacharias says that Jesus did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people live. If you feel like Jesse Livermore, yet the Spirit of God is showing you the futility of your life by living by your own reason, then you know how desperately you need a Savior. And Christ is that Savior. You're not too far gone. Surrender your will to God's. Put your faith in Christ, who is the only one to cleanse for your sin. You see, the battle has been won. Sin has been fought and crushed by the person of Christ. And he did not get prodded. He did not get poked. He was killed for your sin and mine. But the good news is, he's not dead. He's alive. Sin cannot hold him down. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He is alive today. And this is not limited for Crossway. This is for the whole world. This is for the Jesse Livermores. And if you have surrendered your life to Christ in faith, he will be your defender. 1 Corinthians 1.30-31 says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that as it is written, But the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Christ is your wisdom from God. He is your righteousness. He is king of your life your Redeemer. You will stand justified before the judgment of God because of King Jesus. I want to exhort you to continue walking in the righteousness given through Christ and rest in his wisdom. For through Christ, you and I have peace and eternal joy with God because Christ paid it all for our sin, our futile ways of life. It's a beautiful thing. And there is hope yet to obtain for those who feel like Jesse Livermore. It's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, words cannot describe how thankful we are for Christ because we know that without Christ, we are hopeless. We find ourselves like Jesse Livermore living any other way, trying to find answers on our own, only leading to nothing. Yet you have given us the answer. You have given us the hope. Not that we achieved it on our own doing, but because Christ, through your grace, paid it all. I pray, Father, for those who are heavy laden, who are burdened with sin. They are searching for answers. They are in that season of life right now, and they've tried it all. They've tried everything, yet no answers have given. I pray that you show them, you convict them, give them the hope of Christ. And I pray for those who have already surrendered their life to Christ, that again, you give us the strength, you guide and direct us, that we yield to your righteousness, and that we praise you all of our days. In your name we pray. Amen.